All right, welcome back, everybody, to the Run Your Mouth podcast. It's nice to be home. Hopefully everything is smooth flowing, and we'll have an excellent episode because I'm jam-loaded, packed with topics. But didn't feel comfortable doing from, you know, hotel rooms, yelling into hallways, but nice to actually be home. That's got to be probably my longest continuous run being out on the road. Saw Europe, saw Arizona, saw saw San Diego. San Diego audiences really showed up and uh, it was a good time. All right. So I've been yelling about these uh, these new gypsy tricks that every single business out there, they're pulling all sorts of things. It's a war for resources at this point as we all try and pretend like there is an inflation. And I saw the number one clearest example, because I was saying for a little bit that I was in a hard time putting my finger on exactly what these weaselly tricks were. But oh my God, did I spot one? Menus. You ready for this one? People have taken the time to reprint menus. But instead of just putting onto the reprinted menu higher prices, you guys might notice this if you're a person with an attention to details, see things that are on the contracts. Give me one second here. I don't know why my mic is sounding a little bit more metallic than generally speaking. Give me one second. See, this is what happens. He spent all his time out on the road making small adjustments here and testing the levels. All right. I think that's a little more on point. Maybe I did nothing of value. So anyways, I uh, I was looking at the bottom of menus and there's a thing there saying that they will be adding because of price increases 5% to everything on the bill. Little fucking sneaky little Jewy weasel trick over there. You don't just reprint all the pricing so I can look at the menu and see what your pricing is. You're letting me know that all the pricing, there's a little fine line detail at the bottom that aside from the fact that we're going to ask you to aggressively tip our wait staff, we will also automatically be increasing your bill by 5%. In, in other words, you're literally blatantly telling me the price that we're putting on the menu is not the price. It's going to be a price with some other fees and services. Like you both have to tip the waiter and then there's also the we hire the waiter and put on a tablecloth fee. Just wait. Just wait till you guys see progressively more and more fees. Hey, hey, though, we, we we refilled your water free, and now it like tap water at a restaurant. You want to get tap water at a restaurant? It's going to be like when you brought your own wine bottle and they paid an uncorking fee. There's going to be a, hey, we brought you a moderately clean glasses fee. It's not even the only uh, scam that I noticed. It's just the most blatant one because I've been talking about how every single corporation now seems to be pulling these scams. Uh, this was a good one. We stayed at this hotel. Uh, it's called the Moxie. We're not there anymore. I actually came up on the live part of the problem when uh, we were describing the hotel and the whole room yelled at us that they knew where we were staying. Uh, but I mean, that's a good one. They're like, hey, we got this beautiful hotel. It's right in the downtown, but you've got rooms that are the size of prison cells and there's no place for you to put your clothes. And it's going to be one of these things with the sliding doors. So you always kind of have to shit with a mirror facing right there. So if you don't close the door properly, there's a mirror to the outside window. Everyone's watching you take dumps, but that's the new modern age. That's the way hotels do it now. They brought this European freelancing style of that everyone likes seeing everyone else when they're defecating in restrooms type things to America. What were some other ones that uh, that I've noticed is, I don't know. Oh, here's an aside. Are red vines the worst candy of all time? 
Can we can we all I was I was sugar fiending on Sunday. I was mad that I had to spend another day in San Diego. And first I tried having a really positive attitude about it of look, you actually get another day in the city. You never get to see the sights and scenes in the city. Usually I wander and I get a layout for the outskirts. I see the buildings and I feel too intimidated to go into the buildings. But I was like, you know what? This time we're actually gonna do something. And so I got myself to go to the zoo, and you know what I learned? Zoos kind of suck. Maybe if you got a kid that's actually excited about seeing animals, it might be interesting. Like, if I'm going to go to a zoo, firstly, it was there's expensive off the bat. And then you got to be on pathways with other people. It's like being outdoors but still feeling claustrophobic because you're dealing with the noises of everyone else and their chaos of trying to navigate the maps because everyone's on edge. Everyone's been ripped off. (laughs) And it's like, I just want to see shit that's going to kill me. That's it. I just want to see things that if we were actually in the wild, I'd get eaten alive by. I saw a rattlesnake. That was kind of cool. I enjoyed looking at the rattlesnake. I saw a lion that was real sleepy. I saw a bunch of a bunch of bamboos assholes. I, I basically did one section, reminded myself, oh, this is why you stay in the hotel room and don't do anything, because you don't like anything, and then I left. But... And then, and then, right, and then I finally had to check into the next hotel because I had woken up at four in the morning for a flight that apparently didn't get booked. But, you know, you just get used to these things. You just have to embrace your own retarded. If, if, if you can learn anything from me and all the pontificating and yellings that we do in this show is that whatever your flaws are in life, whatever your inner retard is, just you got to cut the guy some slack. What are you going to do, beat yourself up forever or just get annoyed and have to spend another day in a city and purchase another hotel room and then sadly try and eat snacks because there are no good bakeries, which brings me to Red Vine's worst candy of all time. How is it even still in existence? If there's ever been a place that should be burned down for the insurance money, it's wherever that Red Vines factory is. If you're out there and you like Red Vines, I think you need to rethink everything in your entire life because you're doing life wrong. Like, I can even understand black licorice has a harsh flavor. Or like the banana Laffy Taffy. Wasn't a good Laffy Taffy, but it had like a distinctly harsh flavor. Or even candy corn, which is not a particularly good candy, but like I understand that like there's a novelty aspect to it. I understand being a contrarian. I Believe me, I understand being a contrarian. I believe, I understand how you could take some of the off the beaten path type candies and go, you know what, that's my favorite because it's my special thing. It's something that I enjoy. There's some particularly distinct thing to it. But holy shit, Red Vines has to be the worst candy I've ever tasted in my entire life. Firstly, the texture's just off for a Twizzler. It's like someone paper mache just started going into an office. And you know when you've got the, uh, uh, the, 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 what's the, the shitty stuff that you could just kind of, if you're more manly than I, just punch your fist through? The, whatever that, 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 that textured wall thing is. It's like someone reformatted that into a Twizzler that it just kind of crumbles. It doesn't even have a good chew factor. And then the flavoring is what I remember of like Crest toothpaste, like the kid's version of Crest toothpaste. It has like a almost minty quality to it. I'm just saying if, if maybe the people of Red Vines listen to the Run Your Mouth podcast, just give up. Just call it a day. You've got the worst candy product in the history of candy. How do you even mess up candy? It's congealed sugar that you've added more chemicals to so that it would have a, a, a red unnatural coloring that for some reason is appealing to our eyesight as human beings who want to poison ourselves with sugar because I guess if it was just white, 
we would be like, that doesn't look intriguing enough. We all, you know what I mean? It's probably some distinct thing in our biology of walking through the jungle and realizing that you shouldn't eat something. And then we colored things that way so you could feel like you're living dangerously while you poison yourself with sugar. But just don't, it's just not red vines. And if someone wants to come onto this show and debate me and actually say that red vines are a decent candy, robsnewsroom at gmail.com because it's got to be the worst candy of all time. Uh, All right, a couple more travel gripes, and then we'll get into the news because we do have quite a bit of a backlog of topics. And then we will also have Gary Richide back on the show in the uh, second half, probably about a half hour in, uh, to give us a little bit of uh, European history, filling some of the gaps on my uh, overwhelmingly lacking education. Okay, so I had this incident in uh, TSA, and, you know, obviously we don't, root for like government we don't root for the tsa like you know these people are pains in my asses in every single airport but behind me i don't even remember which flight i was taking it must have been from phoenix to uh san diego there was a fellow behind me who had straight up that autism school shooter vibes refused to take off his sunglasses just seemed off from the first interaction that he had with the first person I saw, that he's like, this kid just seems like trouble. And so he gets through right behind me on the security line, and the officer has to stop him because he's like, there's showing up on the thing that there's clearly something protruding from, you know, underneath your waistband, and I'm touching it, and there's clearly something here. And the guy goes, nope, that's just me. So... Actually, very politely, the guy goes to his supervisor and he goes, hey, this got flagged in the machine and I'm also feeling something in that exact location. Supervisor walks over and he goes, hey, so uh, we're going to have to just do a secondary check. It is showing up on the machine and he's feeling something. Would you rather a private area? Guy goes, nope, right here. Guy does a pat. He goes, okay, there's clearly something right here. Would you mind just taking it out or would you prefer that we go to another area? And the guy goes, nope, that's just me. And I had already gone through security. I was like, "Ah, they need a viewing area. I'm like, I'm invested in this story now. If I've already got to go through this whole process and you guys are actually going to have a win and maybe find something, can I see it? Like, that's kind of fun. I would almost prefer they should get like a gambling section when you start going through if you can bet which of these other assholes is trying to smuggle drugs or whatever, which, you know, let, let, let the people drugs through. They're they're just trying to provide other people with a good time, assuming it's fentanyl-free and, you know, we're trying to uh, uh, have a, I don't know. All right, moving on. What else did I uh, notice uh, from being on the road? Oh, we're making a little bit too easy for the people that can't walk. I've never seen a liability like this in my entire life. You want to talk about a great lawsuit that's going to happen? They have, like, these catapult machines for fatsos at airports now where it's like it's like a forklift that is uh, has the electric mode of the Teslas when they were sporty and still good. And it looks like if you needed an electronic device to, you know, basically break into someone's home, you know, like when the uh, SWAT team shows up and they got that big rod and they kind of ram down your door. So this is like a big penis fronting machine with the back of a forklift. And you get this guy who's driving the back of it and they load the fat people onto it. And the thing, and I don't like, if we're in the walkway of the airport, I don't like when you get the guy with the car who's yelling, everyone get out of the way. It's like, buddy, you're in the walkway. You're driving in the walkable area. And these people, they could be walking. 
I've never, and this thing was like moving too fast. I hate to be the old person goes, hey, kiddo, you better slow down with that thing. There's people trying to walk around here. Something's going to happen. Just wait for those lawsuits. Dude, if I was a lawyer, I wouldn't even fly. I would just go to that airport every single day and just wait for them to roll and run over the first ankle and hop right on that thing with the lawsuit. If there's any ambulance chasers out there, you want to partner with me on some ambulance and chasing ventures of what kind of liabilities people are just looking past in the world? Go to the Phoenix airport. They got these new machines that they're running people around that airport on that I'm telling you, you're, they're going to, they're going to, someone's going to get flattened into a wall. All right. And then I got one more take and then we can actually move on to some, uh, some, some actual news topics here. Uh, I'm going to come out and say it. We got to put an end to leaning seats. I know that there was a recent video of some lady getting up on her plane yelling, I'm allowed to lean my seat. I'm allowed to lean my seat. And I'm just going to come out the lean. It's not good enough for the amount that it robs from the person behind you. I recently flew to England because I'm a world traveler, everybody. An internationally touring comedian when I'm opening up for people more famous than I am. <laughs> but anyways, uh, I was out on, uh, on uh, the, the, and by the way, here's another scam that they're running is it used to be that the uh, that the seats for the exit row were prime time. If you got an exit row seat, you knew that you had leg room. Except now, the exit row seats sometimes come with a little bit more leg room, but they put two exit row seats, what used to be a single lane. So when you used to have like from here to their space, it's not like that anymore because they've got these little exit rows. It's like Winnie the Pooh style where the whole, it's not a whole door anymore. It's just like a little thing that gets pulled out. So the exit row thing has become a scam. Trade-off though is that on some planes, you can, they, they got the bigger storage bins on top, which if anyone knows how upfront you can look up a plane to see if they've got the bigger storage bins and how much you can pack into them. Because by the way, on the last flight that I had home, I ran out of clothes in uh, in in Phoenix and just ended up buying more underwear and T-shirts to add to my incredible stash of underwear and T-shirts, which, oh my God, is this a good moment to plug sheathunderwear.com. Promo code RYM, you get yourself 20% off. I ran out of sheaths on the road. And you know what I probably should have done? Me and Robert are friends. I probably could have just called up Robert and said, hey, Robert, I need you to hook it up. I'm stuck out here in Phoenix, Arizona. I ran out of sheaths. I'm sweating. It's hot out. I need you to hook this up. And I bet he would have sent me an emergency care package. I bet he would have done it. But it was day of. I was like, I just, I need some underwear. And you know what I did for the first time in a while? I went into Walmart to buy underwear. And you know what Walmart does with its underwear now? It's under lock and key. It's like going to a jewelry store. If you want to just have an interaction where you can buy yourself some underpants because you ran out of underwear and not have to interact with an employee who's going to open up a closet and pretend like you're looking at a fine jewel that just came out of a third world country, it can't happen. You're going to have to go track. There's no easy in and out on buying underwear anymore. You got to go to the place. You got to find the specific item that you want. Then you got to go track down the staff. You got to get them to go open up the thing. And then with the inflations, it's a, you're, you're paying the price of the premium underwear anyways. And you have to go through all this trouble just to acquire it. So you go to sheathunderwear.com. Use promo code ROIM. You get 20% off the greatest underwear that's ever graced the balls of man. And then you don't have to be roaming the hallways of Walmart feeling like uh, like the poorest person that's ever lived, that you have to actually consult with a store employee just to open up a glass case for a package of underwear. That's inflation for you, talking about these uh, the, the new gypsy tricks everybody's pulling on you, and then you think it's more special because it was behind the glass case and someone had to actually open something up for you. 
you know what? I should prank them back and be like, I'm going to have to try that on. At these prices, all right, let's go with this. If you guys have this process of this stuff being so uh, re remarkably important, then it needs to be under lock and key. You start treating it like they handed you a gun, and you're like, I got to inspect this. I got to make sure it's the right thing. Or you keep, you, you just hold the employee there for a while, and you keep pulling things out, and you're looking at it. All right, I got distracted there because I was trying to talk about leaning seats. Woo, that's, uh, that's some ADD for you. All right, so I was on this plane, first time ever. There was no one behind me. It was a mostly empty flight going to, to England. I don't know why the flight was so empty, but it was. And so I was like, you know what? I'm going to experiment with this leaning seat. Because I was never one of those people with the confidence of, hey, I'll just ruin the life of the person behind me. I was never that guy. I was always like, all right, you can lean the seat, but it's not courteous. Like, what kind of a sociopath that actually sits in coach and goes, I'm going to lean this seat on another person. You really feel good about yourself. You really feel good about what you're entitled to in life if you're sitting in coach and going, I feel comfortable leaning this back. Because, like, do you really want that bad energy of the person sitting behind you and the thoughts that's going to run through their head of their feelings and dispositions towards you? You don't want that. That, 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 you don't want those bad vibes walking around with you all day. The stank of the person behind you just, just hating your guts. And I leaned back. It didn't, it, it wasn't even more comfortable. It wasn't like I was suddenly in a reclining chair with my, with my, with my feet up, ready to take a nap and go to bed. It's like, if anything, the, it's like an awkward angle where you're like, I, I, I'm using more of my ab muscles now for no reason. You're like, I don't even think this is better for, for sleeping purposes. And it happened to me on my flight from uh, Phoenix to whatever. The guy leans back his seat, and they're like, all right, now I can't use my laptop anymore. Thank you, sir. All right. Guys, we've got a whole bunch of news topics. I do want to get into the Christian rap, uh, rapture, and we got Gary Richide coming on. But before we do, I got an incredible new sponsor. Look at this, guys. This one you guys are going to love. Uh, Phoenix Ammunition. You can get yourself a bag of bullets. I got to rework this contract and just have them just send me the ammo. I don't need the checks. I just send me the ammo. Look at this. How much fun is that? Just loading up on bags of bullets. And let's be honest, things are getting dicey out there. If you want to if you want to be able to protect your water supply as the whole world ramps up into World War III, what you need to do is go to phoenixammunition.com and stock up. And here's why this is a great show partner for us. These people, they ain't selling to the government. They ain't selling, they, they are one of these ammunition companies where you're buying their guns and you're helping them develop the next thing that government's going to go stock up on to kill kids in the Middle East. They, they don't work that way. They sell to one person and one person only, and that's the good people of the American public. That's right, no military contracts. They are supporting the militia industrial complex, the good people like you and me who actually... I have to actually get myself a license and, 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 and partake in these things. But I'm lucky enough that fans invite me to go shooting pretty often, and we get out there. And what's funner than having a bag of bullets? All right, here's what else is great about Phoenix Ammo. They use the highest quality component parts and most advanced quality control systems in the country to deliver exactly what you expect. It's a trusted supplier for top-level competitive shooter, shooters, world-class training companies, including Haley Strategic Training and the Warrior Poets Society. And they ship directly to you. 
So guys, let's keep it real simple. We like the independent advertisers over here. We like the things that are actually a part of our life. I know every single one of you, you're loading up on your bullets. So go do it from phoenixammunition.com. They've got incredible pricing. You don't need some promo codes. You bulk up, you can get yourself 25% off on, on some things. Just go, go put in some bulk orders. Let them know that I sent you phoenixammunition.com. They're out there and they're only out there for the good citizens of the United States of America who believe in that right to bear arms. All right, um, let's get into this because I did a little bit of research on the rapture. People were emailing me in. We're going to have an actual expert later in the show, uh, not on, on the next episode. I think on Wednesday I have a actual religious scholar who will come on and uh, explain all the details, get into the weeds on all of our questions. Oh, and while I get into this topic... Let's go live to the tubes because now some of the fun stuff is out of the way uh, so we can welcome our YouTube listeners and hopefully find out that we had good sound the whole time. Because every once in a while, you know, you go live to the YouTubes and then you find out that you had no signs. Uh, uh, all right. So let's get into a little bit of the rapture talk because I, I did a little bit of homework. People send me a couple articles. I got a couple clarifications here and there about how this whole thing was going to work. So essentially, if you get a high concentration of Jewish people living in the land of Israel and they decide to build a, ta uh, a, a temple, then you'll get this rapture, which is going to bring Jesus. And then I guess Jesus comes back and then all the Christians get to have a, I told you so moment until Jesus goes, hey, we're going to do the turn the other cheek thing and just let the Muslims have this. All right, here's my, I, I just kind of think it's like, firstly, also, and I said this on the live part of the problem, you guys are getting scammed. What a great Weasley Jew scam if I've ever heard of a Jew scam. Where they, So the Jews have to actually build the temple. How convenient that they took over the entire area and did everything but that. They pulled the greatest contractor scam of all time. It's just going to go on for a thousand years where they keep telling the Christians in America, yeah, we're about to build the temple. We're just waiting on some more supplies to come in. We, Yeah, we put in the deposit. It's just the, the wood hasn't come in yet. They went all the way to the exact thing that you guys needed to bring back Jesus. And then they're just going to tease it to the end of time. And all right, I got more questions about this. So they believe that... Um, I guess if the uh, if uh, if the temple gets built, then uh, Jesus, I guess, will rise again uh, and he'll start rising to heaven. And then other people who believed in Jesus will also rise to heaven. Is that really the only way? To, so is, is Jesus not currently in heaven? He's just sitting there waiting for the rapture so that he can go up. And then how, how many people is he going to take with him? Can you, can you, right on the spot, if Jesus starts floating up, can you do a quick Hail Mary and then get in too? Can I start stashing some holy water? Can I, can I, can I, can you, can you get baptized at the last second? How's that going to work? Who gets in with him? And then what happens when you get up to heaven and God's just standing there going, hey, I got a tray of apples here for you. Anyone want to try some apples? Welcome up to heaven. Here, it's the, uh, it's the, it's the pre-party room where we all eat a bunch of apples. And then I also just thought that this was interesting to me because apparently uh, there's different versions of the Bible. Now, as to how the Bible, the Word of God, can't just have uh, one definitive version is interesting to me. You know, you'd think if he goes, this is the Word of God from the Bible, there would just be one. You wouldn't think that there would be competing versions at that point of what exactly the Word of God and the Bible is. Uh, but anyways, apparently there's different versions. And I'd like to know, is there some other version that maybe just goes like, 
don't poison the food supply and beware of Monsanto? Like something with more practical advice, like maybe even a different version of the Bible that just says, try not to kill each other in the name of the Lord. Is it, maybe there's like a, another version of the Bible that's got 11th commandment, which says, uh, you know, just don't kill each other. I'm the grand creator. My whole thing was about creating things. So don't destroy them in my name. But, uh, all right. So, you know, that's all my rapture talk for now. Uh, but, you know, maybe we'll uh, get more insight from uh, our pastor coming on on Wednesday. And then I'll completely 180 and go, oh, my God, I had no idea. Let's all go over there and start construction right now. All right. Um, let's do a couple quick topics. And then we've got Gary coming on. So this is the latest uh from Gaza, they even build, they even, uh, the, uh, the Israels, they even bombed, uh, like a refugee camp. And so this was from the Wall Street Journal. We are not targeting Gaza's civilians on purpose. We have obligations to defend Israeli civilians. We're in a war with, um, with, uh, the aim that the brutal massacre of October 7th will never happen again, he said. And I feel like I keep hearing this argument of, well, our intended purpose is not to kill civilians. I don't, I, it's just not an excuse to me. It, does that work to you guys? It's like, it, it, if the end result, you know exactly what it is, even if you want to claim it's not our intention for that to happen, if you know that that's exactly what's going to happen, well, then you're responsible for the outcome. I, I, I haven't quite figured out the joke yet. I haven't quite figured out the angle. But I'm just like, this is nonsense. Can you even define terrorism as not, uh, our, 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 our intention is not killing civilians, it's bringing world peace. That, that's what we're doing. When, when we engage in terrorism, our intended outcome is to crumble an empire by getting them into war, and so that the empire will fall and no longer be able to uh, impose its evil will on other people. So our intended, while we would prefer not to have to kill civilians in order to bring about our version of world peace, uh, we have no choice but to do it because we have no other way to fight an empire. I mean, can you explain away terrorism in the exact same way? We're not, we're, we're, we're not, we're not into killing civilians. That's not our intended. Well, I, and then you go, well, no, they are intentionally killing civilians in order to bring it about. It doesn't matter. You're still doing the exact same thing. To go, well, we're engaging war with these people with the intentions of ending the war and bringing peace. We have no choice but to kill the civilian. I, I don't even understand it. It's like a distinction that makes sense to these people that does not make sense to me at all. All right, let's continue with this. This is from, uh, I believe, a different Wall Street Journal article. Israel's military said targeted and killed a senior Hamas commander, along with dozens of other fighters in a vast underground tunnel complex that imploded beneath a collapsed building. Israel's military spokesperson, Lieutenant Colonel, uh, Colonel Jonathan Conrickis, uh, said the commander, Ibrahim Biari, was a key player of the deadly October 7th attack in southern Israel, and Israel's bombs struck between buildings. We don't intend for the ground to collapse, he told reporters, but the issue is that Hamas built their tunnels there and they're running their operations from there. I, I guess as long as it's not your intention, it's all about your intentions. They're very into like the spiritual over there and setting your intentions. And so, you know, I, I, if, if I rob someone and my intention is not to make them poorer, but just for me to be wealthier, then it, it wasn't my intention.
the Jews. They're muting my microphone. All right, and now to give you guys a little bit more of the coverage of what's going on over there, this is uh, the Biden administration has uh, for more than a week called for a humanitarian pause to enable aid to to flow into the besieged territory and potentially facilitate the egress of foreign nationals and injured Palestinians. I think we need a pause, President uh, Biden said. A humanitarian pause. That's the newest thing. Like Biden's just sitting around in the the White House going – Whoa, time out, guys. You're killing a few too many of these people. What? What is a human... How do you take a humanitarian, uh, humanitarian break? And then what? You get to go back to being inhumane? Like, guys, let's just have a moment of humanity here. Why don't we test that out? Why don't we just take a moment and uh, see if, like, you know... Guys, can we just have a weekend of humanity? And then you guys can return to being inhumane? I don't know how long I was uh, muted for there uh, before, but it was because I was making the best point I've ever made in my entire career. And so that's what happens sometimes when you make points that good is uh, you get muted. All right. Blinken tells Abbas he asked Israel to use smaller bombs on Gaza because everyone likes a compromise. You know, listen, we, we can't tell them not to kill people, but at least they maybe with a little bit less of a splash. Maybe they can use the smaller bombs when they're out there. That's what Blinken's out there doing in the Middle East right now. He's shaking hands with the Palestinians' leaders, trying to, you know, de-escalate the situation. He's like, listen, I proposed a compromise of smaller bombs. We're going to work with the Israelis. We're going to try and take a humanitarian pause before they return to being inhumane. And then when they return to inhumane, maybe we can get them to use the smaller bombs. Uh, And then, of course... You know, while we're going, we don't support the killings of what's going on over there. Uh, what do we just approve? We just got a new funding bill for, let's see, the, mon- mo- uh, the money, $14.3 billion. And uh, that was money that could have been used to uh, try and temper Putin's aggressions. Because, you know, now that this Israel thing's going on and we got to pour all of our money into the Middle East, we all now have to just live a world where Putin's going to be taking over all of Europe. Because uh, remember, Ukraine was winning the war. Ukraine was doing great, right? They were, they were, they were winning the war. They just need a little bit more resources. But now that we need to fund what's going on back, going on in Israel, we're all just going to have to live with the fact that Putin's going to be taking over uh, all of Europe. All right, and then this was from Vice President Kamala Harris. She was putting out this video uh, talking about today. POTUS and I are announcing the country's first national strategy to counter Islamophobia. And why not just prevent our military partner from blowing up their buildings in Gaza? I mean, if we're concerned about that, why not make that the correction? All right, we got another brand new sponsor to the show. Look at this. With, with this kind of money pouring into this operation, you don't think we're not going to be able to fix all these technical problems? Get a fancy producer in here? All right, real quick. And then uh, I think Gary might be hopping on. If not, I got plenty more news stories to cover. But Nado Shave Co. Dude, if you're one of these fucking badass individuals who actually gets out there and just straight razors, I, I you know, I wasn't raised that way. I use one of those uh, stupid metal uh, spinny wheel things that takes forever and you never get a good shave. You always end up with the little things scrapped on the bottom of your whatever. Or sometimes I use a, like a metal thing on my head and now it's not blending great anymore. It used to be that my middle, when I shaved it out, it looked like I was just choosing to shave uh, my head and look like a skinhead and not that if I was growing things out that it was real thin in the middle and that I was actually a closeted uh, complete dork who would otherwise be having a comb over. Uh, But some of you people out there are real men 
and you actually use real razors and quit going to CVS and buying your Bix and your other plastic shitty razors that, you know, just keep supporting the machine of sponsors, your Gillettes who would never work with a program like this. So if you guys want to be out there, you're real men, you're using actual razors and not that bullshit plastic stuff where they pretend because they're giving you a shitty razor that you need three, four, five, six, seven. We're shoving eight shitty razors into this razor. You know what happens when you get all those razors scraping up against yourself? You know what happens? You end up with your with the dinks, you end up with the cuts, you end up with the razor burns. But you get yourself a quality razor, dude, all that goes away. And not only can you support independent media like this and get away from those big brands that are just supporting all the woke nonsense and getting yourself a better shave, it's actually cheaper. You believe all that? You believe that you could do all that while saving yourself money and being a real man and using a direct razor right to get the smoothest of all shaves going? Here, I'll give you guys some of the pricing here. Uh, 75 bucks allows you to shave for an entire year. That's a pretty good stat. And for those who like to use a brand name blade for each shave, you can sign up for our quarter shave club. Members will receive a major discount and pay 25 cents a shave. That's pretty damn good. So take down big shave and visit Nadu, um, shave.com to get yourself our traditional safety razor RYM for 15% off. So there you guys go. Continue to support independent media, get yourself some good shaves going, Promo code RYM, 15% off. And now, let's get into some, some real stuff here. Gary, Gary, give me one second. Let me pull this guy down. We've got our Run Your Mouth official historian, Gary Richard, author of A Twisted History of the United States of America. Welcome back to the show, my friend. Hey, Robbie. Great to be back. We're having something of an indigenous people's summer here. Extended. It's warm here in Chicago. Ooh. what You know, they're talking about... Um, they're talking about a big time El Nino and that it's supposed to be a very cold winter that uh, I guess they'll blame on global, global warming and not traditional weather patterns. There you go. Got to blame it on something. You got to blame it on something. Uh, everyone in the chat, I did just change Gary's settings to come through my headphones. So let me know if for some reason you're not hearing him because we can make that adjustment. Um, Mr. Gary, yeah. I want to get into all sorts of stuff. I went over to Europe for the first time. I was walking around looking at the pretty sights and scenes. And it's always fun for me when I realize just how little I know of the world. <laughs> um, and I wanted to go to the, uh, uh, I don't know what, the, the, the British History Museum, because I was curious to get into some of the folklore. And uh, I didn't make it there. But <laughs> I was like, maybe I can hit up Gary and he can yeah. give me some some random fun facts. Um, well, you, you missed a lot of stolen artifacts, particularly from Egypt. I figured that that's what that was. I really mm -hmm. I, I honestly figured that it was mostly stolen artifacts. All right. So here's Greece, my too. They, the, the British Museum yeah. actually had the paneling of the Parthenon at one time. I don't even what is the Parthenon? Parthenon is the major temple that was constructed in Athens. By Pericles and others. Mm -hmm. And and what, they just completely relocated it? Essentially, yeah. I mean, because Greece was in such turmoil and constantly occupied by foreign invaders, including the Ottomans. Whenever right. the British went in there, they kind of just ransacked the place. Don't worry, the, the British weren't alone in that. The French did that when Napoleon, for example, invaded Egypt. He did the same thing. But it was also there that the Rosetta Stone was discovered by French archaeologists. So got all those connections. Nice. Uh, before we continue, I got to make some studio improvements because you can literally I, I forgot to put up the other piece of the green, the, the green screen here. I don't know how much of my closet people are able to see, but I don't think there's anything too incriminating over there. Uh, the Rosetta Stone. What the hell is that even? I don't even know what that is. OK, so for up until the 18th century, 
we didn't understand what Egyptian hieroglyphics meant. They were character language that the ancient Egyptians had written, but we had no way to decipher what they were trying to convey in their historical records. We had a ton of different documentation from papyruses all the way through to like tablets and stuff like that, that they had written down of their history. We had no way to discern what it was. So the Rosetta Stone was a discovery by French archeologists who were digging around while Napoleon's armies were raging throughout Egypt. And they discovered it's a stone that has essentially a translation of the Egyptian hieroglyphics into ancient Greek. We knew ancient Greek. So once we were able to decipher what the different hieroglyphics meant and how they corresponded to the Greek characters, that's where we were able to determine what the hell was going on in ancient Egypt. And aliens, right? <laughs> I, I actually, I just read, uh, I didn't read a book, but I read, uh, listened to an interview by this guy, Daniel Connor. He's a Catholic scholar and he is adamant that aliens do not exist. And I'm kind of, uh, I think alien, the alien thing is a diversionary tactic. Okay. Of state in particular. Lay it on me. What's the diversionary tactic? Okay, well, well, think about like, okay, the, the world is devolving. You got war, pandemic. We still can't solve the most basic things that lead to human destitution, including things like disease. In fact, we create things that propagate disease and make people even sicker. So all of these things that are abject failures of whether we call it big science or government or NGOs or whatever, whenever there's a, a, a kind of intensity of those things, all of a sudden the alien thing comes out. Remember a couple of months ago where that guy said he discovered the, the alien bodies? Yeah, from yeah, the yeah. That, that horse shit in Mexico. Correct. And then, of course, during this uh, shit show of an administration and Congress, although we could say that since World War II and even before that, um, whenever there's an it's kind of a wag the dog scenario without war. We think right. about the alien thing or Roswell and people get diverted into thinking, oh, well, the government's on the case or that the government is some heady institution that has control of the situation. It doesn't have control of anything. I think it's just a diversionary tactic to make our minds, you know, not be focused on the destitution, inflation, poverty, wealth disparities that are created by kind of crony socialism. I'm okay with that. All right, so here was my biggest question. I was walking around uh, a little bit in England. I'm looking at that Big Ben. I'm looking at the Parliament building. I'm looking at wealth that I guess was just plundered from other areas. And so this is kind of a two-part question. Uh, now, if you're the state, like even our current state, uh, war can be profitable for you, right? Like if you're a senator and you're going to get some you know, cushy job from Raytheon when you leave, so yeah. if a war goes nowhere billions of dollars literally get flushed down a toilet you win because hey someone had to pay for those bombs and you end up getting paid for it i think you can almost look at the ukraine war and some of the wars now and realize we're not supposed to win anything it's we're just supposed to go fight them because people will make money yes with, with that said was there ever a time where were examples of um i guess wars actually being profitable like there's some wars that seem like a World War One. It's like I I don't know. Wait, no one no one really won anything. I guess Germany got saddled with uh, debts that it was supposed to repay and just didn't. But are there examples of, for example, and I I think you've you've argued otherwise even on the show of uh, going into a country, taking all their gold, and going that was a good. I, I'm I, we're we're taking out the humanity here and just looking at it from an investment standpoint. 
And I'm asking if there is examples of war being profitable. Yeah, well, uh, Ludwig von Mises' famous quote about war is that war prosperity is like that which comes from an earthquake. It looks as though it's profitable, uh, but it never truly is. It's it, And it goes back to the whole broken window fallacy of if you destroy something, well, then you can go in and rebuild it, and then you're right. empowering people to do so and the like. Uh, but beyond to, to the heart of your question, is it ever truly profitable? You have to ask the question in Latin, qui bono, who is profiting? It's not that it's never profitable uh, because of its destructive capabilities. And of course, then the blowback that it in, inordinately and always reaps, but it's who is profiting. And you've put your finger on the people who tend to profit. It's the war profiteers. Uh, one could argue, too, I suppose, that it's just the war machines that are created in anticipation of war. I mean, think about the na the nature of which and by which we changed the name in the United States of the original War Department, because that was what it was supposed to be. It was supposed to be, right. uh, if we're going to use it, it's a War Department. And then we couched it in language of, oh, no, it's the Defense Department. So... Therefore, that seems in and of itself by its nomenclature to at least justify massive expenditure and always couch it in the language of this is all for the national interest and national defense. Now, those are very general terms. You know, what's the natural what's the national interest of going into Afghanistan and uprooting the Taliban only to have them be take over again 20 years and after trillions of dollars have spent. But if you go back in even American history, what's what's the national interest of Marines being uh, lo located and working and, and occupying like 15 different countries just in Latin America and the Caribbean during the Wilson administration? I mean, where's the national defense there? So who's profiting? Again, yes, it's the war profiteers. I would also say, too, it's just government in general. If we're looking for a defense or a, a, a raison d'etre, a reason for government to be, the first thing that they'll always allude to, and people, when you and I debate with those who are statists or those who just aren't uh, minarchists or anarchists or libertarians, they'll always say, well, who's going to provide for the common defense? After all, it's in the preamble of the Constitution. Who's going to do that? Who's going to stop an invasionary force if government does not? And of course, they don't. All have guns. <laughs> we all have precisely, and it's yeah. not as if we're all going to look around as if we're Stone Age cavemen and say, well, we can't possibly work together to for mutual defense. We need some gigantic behemoth of a centralized entity to take away all of our freedoms and rights and then propose that they do that. But all the while, they're just engaging in war profiteering, a self-justification right. for their existence. To hone in, though, I guess on uh, the English monarchy, okay. prior to World War One, did they fight wars that brought wealth that was like a good investment to the king? Like, is that mm -hmm. mainly how they made their money? Like, who did they ransack cash from? Uh, the real wealth, uh, here's the scandalous thing. The yeah. real wealth of England is from the Industrial Revolution. It's, it's not so much from the usurpation of other peoples and their goods. In fact, if you look at the eras in which the United Kingdom or Great Britain, uh, England before it are, is indeed the most prosperous of the European nations. And by the way, I mean, Shakespeare called it that dark, dingy island or cloud, you know, which, which is always cloudy. It, right. it, it really has no 
natural advantages to it. Uh, its population was relatively small in the 16th, 17th, 18th centuries, and then into the 19th and 20th when it emerged as a, a global power. But what it had was it was the first to industrialize. And with that came such an enormous welling up of profitability, ingenuity, uh, a, a need for, yes, acquiring goods, but indeed the the times in which the Industrial Revolution really flourished is when you had entities, for example, like the British East India Company going out and here's the thing. And when you were asking me questions in preparation for this uh, this episode, I was thinking a lot about the way in which we, we tend to conflate when we talk about imperialism or empire building. We always think of it as a state or government enterprise, right. but it didn't it wasn't always that way. Um, for example, uh, the British and the English before them weren't at all interested, really, from the governmental stance in founding the eastern seaboard colonies that eventually became the United States. They were much more interested in the commercial wealth that could be derived from extracting raw materials such as sugar, uh, rice, uh, stuff of that nature that would supply their or, or tech cotton. Uh, and fabrics and flax that would supply their textile mills, to their tobacco mills, uh, their sugar refineries, especially for rum. That's what they were interested in. And those were largely private enterprises. And that's where that wealth kind of bubbled up and flourished. Now, what happens when over time, especially within England, the power of the monarchy starts to decline, especially after the English Civil War in the 17th century, and you have these parliamentarians, which are mainly merchants and lawyers and entrepreneurs and businessmen who worked for entities like the British East India Company or uh, the English Slave Company and the like. Well, what they did was they said, look, we could expend all of this effort and our own money and risk it to go off to Indonesia as the Dutch did or to Indochina as the French did or to China itself but we have to pay for people like learn the language and we have to pay for a, essentially a, a private army to go in there and protect those individuals. They have to engage in like negotiations with the emperors and the local officials and the pashas in Arabia or whatever it is. You know what? Fuck that. Let's just get the army to do it. Let's just get the Navy to do it. And that is that type of nexus we might call it, again, crony capitalism, or I would even go so far as to say as via Michael Rechtenwald, that was the first original, most powerful governmentality. When you had that nexus saying, look, why don't we just, instead of expending all that effort, why don't we just send a gunboat into Nagasaki, as the Americans did, by the way, to open up uh, Nagasaki in Japan to American goods and trade, and therefore we don't have to expend all of this wealth ourselves. So... I mean, a, a lot there, but okay. I guess the real wealth of the English monarchy was in the later generations when they were able just to tax the goods of the, basically the gains of the Industrial Revolution. Well, true, but it wasn't so much even taxation. For yeah. example, when when Edmund Burke has his protest uh, as he's a parliamentarian against uh, British laws that were, well, unnerving and enervating the colonies that led to the American Revolution, he just it gets up before Parliament. He says, you idiots, we have Adam Smith right here proving that mercantilism doesn't work. Right. You have all, the, all these laws that are all funneling these 
supposedly funneling and monopolizing these goods into England from the colonies. They want to trade with whomever they want. They were guaranteed the rights of Englishmen way back in 1603 in the Jamestown Charter. We don't make money from taxation. We don't make money from monopolization of their trade. We make money from exchange, from capitalism, in other words. Right. So why are you trying to choke this off and essentially place sanctions upon the colonies? It's idiotic and backward, and they just kept pursuing it. All right. Back to the wrecking wall, though, of, I guess, uh, having the Navy just show up and going, hey, you're going to trade with us. Mm-hmm. So would that be, once again, from an A, we're looking at this amorally for a second. Yes. Is that a good blunt? Is that a good gamble as a king? Hey, I'm going to show up with my military and maybe they give me favorable trade agreements and we never have to even fight on this. And now I'm walking away with profits based off of the uh, intimidation of force. In a my- myopic and short-sided way or for a very short duration of time, yeah, it probably is profitable right. uh, because of the need as that industrial engine of England needed cotton, it needed tea, it needed raw materials, it needed you know rare woods or jewels or whatever, and, and gold and silver as well. I mean, as it was desiring those materials, sugarcane and the like, yeah, you had to bring those things in and maybe that was profitable for a time. But in the long run, as people get more sophisticated, their enmity grows as you're you've gone from a voluntary exchange, maybe in early stages of imperialism with joint stock companies and uh, and the like. And now you have a war machine coming in and dictating to whom and with whom you could when you can trade and with uh, and what materials. So then you end up with socialism that just gets in the way of natural capitalism and profits well, on both sides. Yes. And you treat the native populations as nothing but cogs in your industrial machinery and engine. And this is why, you know, when Marx and Engels and other earlier sort of socialists like Louis Blanc and others, uh, and Pierre-Joseph Proudhon, who was probably the smartest among them in the, in the 19th century. That's why the, the communists had something on really good, uh, pure capitalists and liberals, because they were the first ones to really decry that like, the, uh, imperialism is, has to be destroyed. It has to be brought down. Whereas liberals were like, well, maybe we can benefit from it because they were the ones benefiting as part of the bourgeoisie. Whereas a true, a good uh, anarcho-capitalist or a good libertarian, a good fundamentally capitalist individual, for example, like Frederick Bastia said, don't, don't, don't go into colonies. Don't do that because all you're doing is subjugating people in the long run. You're going to be frustrated because of war breaking out. And then sure enough, Robbie, it's a kind of a vicious cycle because when the natives, you know, rebel, uh, when the Indians and there's a Sepoy rebellion, for example, in India in the 19th century, well, what happens is as a result of that rebellion, the British declare, well, obviously the natives are getting restless. So we have to send in more army and we have to send in then administrators and directly impose administration upon these people. And thus you get massive empires like the British had. Interesting. All right. So uh, on the note of the kings, I guess one of the like things that I think about sometimes that I get fascinated with, and I look at, uh, I guess, Putin and Z would be my primary examples. And I haven't mm-hmm. delved into this, but I wonder, how do you become like an emperor? Like those two guys, they grew up like Z, you know, I understand if your dad was the king, you becoming king, or even mm-hmm. understand if you're like in the royal family and you, you get a good coup going and you kill off a bunch of those people. But like, 
navigating, especially like these new, you know, I, I, I don't know where the hell Z came from, but Putin, you know, came out of the Soviet system into like the new supposed capitalism of that country. And then basically yeah. rigged elections, I would seemingly it would appear to be uh, and just is basically king of Russia in his own weird way and is probably the wealthiest person on Earth other than maybe the uh, Saudi royal family. Uh, so in, maybe we can talk about those characters another time. I don't know how familiar you are with their origin yeah. stories. Uh, but I'm curious, like the first, and maybe we could just pick a couple of them because I didn't even realize Amsterdam had a king until someone's like, you know, that's the old king's palace. Um, it, the monarchs of Europe, and I guess we can start with the uh, king of England. Mm-hmm. How did like how did those first people first arise? Like how did you get like your first kings of somebody kind of going, hey, I'm in charge here. Okay, so that's a huge question, but I'll try to fill it into a very quick response. And it's amazing how the ascent to power, either in contemporary times or ancient times, is very much the same. It's built on intrigue, intermarriage, warfare, violence, um, assassination. And that's really the story of history, as, as you said. So how did kings emerge? Well, of course, it was a a kind of convenient means by which to organize society, especially after the fall of the Roman Empire in in Europe. But we don't have to go back that far because I think your question is more relating to how do people secure these sinecures of power? And I would, when you posed that question to me in preparation for um, for the episode, I actually thought a lot about how it had to be established in such a way that ultimately you couldn't just have powerful and wealthy families who are the landed gentry who had the resources by which to assume power. And then in the Western European system in a feudal way, because all these in Western Europe, after the fall of the Roman empire, you have these series of invasions. Okay. And that's why feudalism emerges because everyone's like, well, we have to band together and we have to swear allegiance to a vassal Lord and King. And then they're supposed to provide us protection. But as that system devolved and started to uh, wash away as those invasions stopped, well, the king still demanded tribute and the king still demanded allegiance. The question, therefore, is why did people just continue to buy into it? And why did they uh, give their taxation dollars, their resources, their, their labor to the king and their allegiance to the king? In large part, it's because of propaganda, just the same way that we did it. it it's just in through different media. So I brought some, I actually uh, have some visual aids. This this one, this picture is of the banqueting hall at Whitehall. Now, that was constructed in the 17th century by James I, okay? It shows James ascending to heaven as a god. This is a 17th century king. Right. Now, that's just pure propaganda. He had, oh, by the way, Peter Paul Rubens, the greatest uh, painter at the time in Northern Europe, he was commissioned at great expense to paint the ceiling of that. Now, whereas, for example, the other famous ceiling. It was just Instagram for their day. Instead of like posing fake pictures, I hired an artist to get some fake picture of me as a ascending into heaven and then then convinced everyone I was a god. That is it. There's no Instagram. There's no radio. There's no internet to push out this propaganda. So the thing to learn is we, architecture. we all just need to be better liars. If you want to be successful in life, you got to be your own publicist and you got to do a better job of faking Instagram pictures to make it seem like you're more <laughs> successful than you are. That's it. Well, 
But isn't it true that you're, you're yeah. surrounded by posers? I mean, whether it's in the corporate world or it's right. in finance or banking or government, especially in government, but every in doctors, doctors are posers. You got like that Scott Gottlieb guy. He's a poser. He goes on CNN. He acts as the, an, uh, an unbiased arbiter of what the vaccines do. Right. And that's the guy who used to be at Pfizer. Like that's the guy who used to be at the FDA. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yes. So, but this became so important and, and so central to the Kings maintaining power, whether it was in Britain, France, Spain, uh, that it was enormously profitable. I mean, there was, there was a, a gigantic industry of art and propaganda that went in as, this goes all the way back to the Medici. I mean, the Medici were the first of the major bankers within and systematized uh, continental bankers within Europe. And then the Rothschilds just pick up from where the Medici led off, led off in the 17th and 18th centuries. How'd they pull that off? The Rothschilds or the Medici? Yeah. No, how did the Rothschilds pull off like, uh, like that sounds like some real mafia shit. They just sliced off some heads and said, we're in charge of banking now. Well, the history of the Rothschilds is fascinating. I know, I forget his name, but there's a historian who's coming out with a full like volume of the history of just the Rothschild family. But we're going back to the 18th century. And uh, the the paterfamilias was named Anshul uh, uh, Rothschild. And he basically secured the accounts of the Duke of, of uh, Frankfurt and the area around Saxony. Uh, and then he also got another a, a series of other accounts. And then he just made wise business decisions. He created franchise banks. And he was able to convince as a financier all these wealthy individuals whether they be the merchant class or the kings the dukes the, the royalty uh and the aristocracy to have an account with him and therefore his family became immensely immensely powerful he just created basically the first bank well well i wouldn't say that because banks had been around as institutions or things right. like them dating back to ancient times was he but, uh was he fractional reserve banking though like was he kind of oh, ponzi question. scheming it the whole way up uh to a degree uh because when there was fractional reserve banking going on but everybody was pretty much wed to the idea that fiat currency wouldn't work it's only with right. world war 1 that the, the people resort to that or nations, countries resort to that out of desperation uh, or preference. If you want to go to the conspiracy route, I tend to believe that that was just the excuse to go to fiat currency um, because Europe had already in, engaged by that time in a series of experiments with what we might call relative fractional reserve banking and fiat currency. And there's an economic law called Gresham's law that basically says, look, uh, if, whether you look at the um, scandals of the Mississippi. Um, there, there was a big scandal in France that, in which people were defrauded based on fiat currency, essentially, of a central banking endeavor. Good by, currency pushes out bad currency. Precisely. Okay, so exactly. So they already experienced hyperinflation. Moreover, they, all you had to do was look at Spain um, and how Spain devolved. Spain was in the driver's seat in early imperialism, importing all the gold and silver. They have the gold, Spanish golden age in the 17th century. El Greco and Cervantes, they're writing, painting, respectively. And sure enough, what happens to Spain? They become a third or second rate power. Why? Because they, they couldn't even, <laughs> it, the gold and silver bullion that they were extracting, to your question about who's getting rich in warfare and imperialism, well, it ended up being more of a curse than a blessing because what do you need when you extract all that gold and silver from across the ocean? 
well, you need a gigantic armada. And then you need a, apparently you need a gigantic bureaucracy and viceroys and all these governors and all of this waste and fraud and abuse to pay for it all. Well, by within a century, uh, we're talking about early 17th century, the Spanish had declared bankruptcy something like four or five times. And that's and they were even pushing out these worthless call, coin called Miravetti. And they were just like copper bullshit coin. No one was using them. Or actually, people were using them, but it caused hyperinflation and a price revolutions throughout Europe. So they didn't, the Rothschilds didn't dabble too much in the fiat currency world. They were just more so interested in funding. They certainly funded wars. They certainly funded uh, imperialist ventures and the like. And they were quite skilled at not picking sides. Uh, one thing that a lot their their Jewish background and Jewish identity allowed them to do is, first of all, that they were able to engage in what other Europeans and Christians, and particularly in the Protestant world, were called usury, which means giving out loans with interest payments. Uh, the Jews were allowed to do that. Uh, and then secondly, it's like that. Oh, I don't know if you ever saw that Seinfeld episode where Putty uh, tells Elaine to go steal the neighbor's paper. You ever see that one? And Elaine goes, well, why do you want me to steal the paper? He goes, well, you're going to hell. Who cares anyway? <laughs> uh, so they, they, they kind of pushed off the usury thing and banking off on the Jews. And, and then right. they were identified, unfortunately, with that. Um, and then so... Um, the, the Rothschilds were funding all that. They were engaged in making sure that the the various powers throughout Europe, and there were you know thousands of them by this time, right. were funded in their. Uh, what yeah. a stupid concept that God was anti-capitalism and that He would uh, yeah. look at usury as a sin, uh, right. as if everyone like I, I don't know. It seems just like a a cap on human potential to assume that people would rather just give their resources to other people so that the other person could be profitable with their resources and to not um, get a return on that risk and investment. Well, again, it's just an area where it requires the commandments in the Old and New Testaments that right. seem against lending out money of interest have to be interpreted in their proper context and according to a degree. You know, is there is there a point where lending out money becomes penurial and becomes aggressive and antagonistic? Sure, if you're, you know, a loan shark or something like that, you're going to start breaking people's legs if they don't pay you back in this right. way. Uh, that that's where the what is uh, it seems to be God's man. I spent a lot of time in my own work just right working through that and this idea that God is anti-capitalistic and uh, uh, you get a lot of Christians, especially like you get these weird uh, fundamentalist Catholics on in my particular realm that start talking about how usury is bad and God's really a socialist. It's like where are you getting that? So I spent a lot of time de debunking all right. that. Well, I think uh, God appreciates. Uh... Uh, charitable efforts <laughs> and n nothing in religion ever said that you can't be charitable or that God won't reward you for your charity. Of course, but... Whether it's in the Old Testament where Cyrus is giving money over to the Jews to rebuild the temple right. or in the New Testament where Jesus is saying he's all he has all these parables about people loaning uh, headmasters, loan, uh, wealthy men loaning money to individuals and they're supposed to make money and be productive with it. And right. the person that doesn't gets thrown into Gehenna. I mean, he gets thrown right. into jail. So it's like, right. where is this coming from? All right. Uh, so last question while I have you here, and then we're going to go back yeah. to a quick snapshot of some random topics I collected from the last week. Uh, and you know what? Before we do the last topic, why don't you plug uh, your podcast and the book? Oh, yeah. So I we do the Hot Water History podcast. It comes out every week. Me and my former student, Charlie Westerman, we hit all major topics 
a lot of history stuff, a lot of Catholic, uh, Christian, religious questions that are answered there, and then a lot on um, Zezian, uh, anarcho-capitalist stuff, Austin economics. So I uh, love you there, and then I love to have you there. And then um, we to plug the book uh, we wrote together, the Twisted History of the United States, which is available on Amazon. So if you want to get your head exploded on all this good history, you can check that out. Hell yeah. All right. So uh, any it, like uh, I've gotten a little bit of a rundown from uh, from Davey Smith, who seems to have a handle on everything in an incredible yeah. way. Mm -hmm. uh, I do not know much about the modern Israel history, like as to what happened post World War Two, that the Jews ended up there, how many Muslims were actually living in the area, how much of the area was settled, who took what from who, how people got shoved into the areas. I just don't know the whole thing. I don't know it. I just, I don't, like, I just don't. So I'm curious if uh, you're up on this stuff, if you got any particular insights or takes that, uh, you know, might be worth sharing. Well, join the club, Barabi, because who knows all the intricacies of this? I guess you can right. look at a, a Middle Eastern historian of great repute is Bernard Lewis. He, right. he wrote extensively on that. I mean, he's great on, on the question of Middle East and the resettlement of Jews and the establishment of Israel. I mean, uh, my particular take on it is that it's just the most recent episode of a people who have desired to inhabit a land uh, and to resettle there en masse. And then they're uncomfortable with either allowing that uh, that native population to stay and live among them, or they just simply don't want to uh, recognize their land claims. Uh, I guess we could go all Rothbardian is the question of how much the Palestinians were homesteading there. It, I don't think that's even necessarily the, the central question. The central question is, did they have a Right. Did the, the, the Israel, the Israelis and the Israeli state, and particularly the Zionists who wished to establish it post-World War II, really dating back to the late 19th century, did they have a right to create what, let's let's call it what I would argue it is, an apartheid state? And if, if that's the case, uh, and there was no expectation of a desire of the Palestinians, and, and people will always argue, well, the Palestinians aren't really a people, or Ben Shapiro will throw that out. What the hell are you talking about? What, in, that's a very statist and very uh, very convoluted idea. I mean, are, are the Cherokees not a people because they don't have a nation state? Are, are uh, the, 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 the pygmies not a people because they, they don't have a country, that they, they don't have pygmy land? I mean, are, are, how about, uh, let's use a, an example that Dave always uses. Are the Kurds, are the, there's no Kurdistan. Is there uh, is that a people who are who are, land, are are inhabiting an area? Do they have rights because they've lived there for centuries and worked the land, and then they have they have actual deeds to that? Of course they have. Of course they have that. So uh, my my take on all this is that you this is what occurs when you have, of course. And then what, what's strange about it all, too, is that. Hold on one second. I think uh, either your mic just went out or my mic just went out. Hold on one second. Can you hear me? Oh, it seems to be me. Give me one second. I don't know what the hell okay, just happened. Sure. Mind just talking for a sec? Yeah, you good now? Man, that's a weird one. Hold on. Hold on. Okay. 
Yeah, I'm not muted. I got you. All right. You I don't did? know what happened there, but I'm listening. That's all right. No, uh, and my, my point being is that just because you don't have a recognized uh, seat in the UN and you have you don't have Palestine land doesn't mean that you have a, as a people do not you, you know, you've in a sense relinquished your right to the territory that you as you have historically inhabited. Um, so what it's it's a little bit ironic if you look back at Middle Eastern history too. It's as if the uh, Israelis have set up what would under the Ottoman Empire was what was called a millet which were these religious minorities that existed in this gigantic Ottoman Empire that was run from Istanbul. And they had limited rights, but they are always suppressed and they had uh, they didn't have full civil liberties as the Turks and as the other uh, major players did within the Ottoman Empire. And that seems to be what Israel wants to construct. I mean, you're going to you have a, a Jewish state uh, but subjugated within that state. And then you'll hear people talk about like, oh, well, there's, oh, Jen, uh, Ben Shapiro brought this up. There's an, there's an Arab Muslim that's on the Israeli Supreme Court. There's one, you see? Right. I mean, <laughs> how is that? It's it, it sort of like saying, well, um, guess what? In the Reconstruction era post-Civil War, we had black senators. We had Hiram Johnson and we had, but there were three of them. <laughs> I mean, it didn't mean all of a sudden that uh, Jim Crow and uh, and all of the it, it, it's as if the idea that there's limited representation and that Arabs are treated uh, better in Israel than maybe other, you know, the old platitude, they're treated better than in any other Arab country. That doesn't really matter. That's uh, it, it really doesn't pertain to the situation. It's whether those the people in Gaza, the West Bank, those Palestinians that were ejected and pushed out of their properties and lands, do they have a right to come back? That's why that's what is in the. Uh, rhetoric always of now that of course does that justify attacking innocence never on either side all right i anyway. think we uh mr gary thank you for coming on once again making the time out of your uh the busy day uh we're gonna hop into some other uh random topics because i'm backloaded it's gonna be a long episode of run your mouth hey, people can what, enjoy what it. Is that? before i leave you what, what's yes. the background that you got oh this is the uh unused parts of the border wall that they had to auction off for pennies on the dollar <laughs> who's who, right who's profiting from that right yeah it might be one of my favorite news stories the entire year was that the border wall had been paid for and they mm -hmm. just refused to build it and then sold it for pennies on the dollar while pretending like there wasn't a problem and then 180 and said we're gonna go build it but then they had already sold off border parts just i i mean we were joking on an earlier run your mouth that they, at some point they had to protect the border wall parts probably with a wall there's probably a fence around the border wall at one point to keep people, awesome. and then just like what are people doing with the with the bought parts for the border wall is it like i'd love like if there was like just a guy in jersey who had this between him and his neighbor because it was just so cheap it was cheaper than buying a home depot fence he's got a 24 foot wall um but yeah yeah the new american dream is the border wall fence instead of the white picket fence exactly yeah, yeah yeah really uh i mean just the idea of picking it up on the cheap so like i if i had a sitcom you know i would write that character and the guy who yeah, has a oh, border shit. wall fencing on his backyard fencing for like 50 percent off yeah yeah exactly all right thank you for joining us have a good one see ya all right so we're gonna hop into some random topics 
Here we go. Quick topics. So the first is uh, this was interesting to me. This was from the New York Post, and they were actually trashing Boris Johnson. Uh, not saying that you shouldn't trash Boris Johnson, but apparently, somewhat earlier on into the pandemic, uh, here was the here. I'll give you guys the uh, title from the article. Boris Johnson suggested that COVID was nature's way of dealing with old people. Uh, and this was them uh, hating on him that he was being flippant about the virus. But let's read a little bit of this. Early in October 2020, Johnson stressed the need to recalibrate away from a lockdown because it was predominantly elderly people dying. I must say I've been slightly rocked by some of the data on COVID fatalities, he wrote at the time. Messages shared into the inquiry show. The median age is 18 to 81 for men, 85 for women. That is above life expectancy. So get COVID in life longer, he was quoted as saying. I no longer buy all these NHS overwhelmed stuff, and there was a max 3 million in this country aged over 80. A UK government spokesperson told the Post throughout the pandemic the government acted to save lives and livelihoods, prevent the NHS being overwhelmed, and deliver a world-leading vaccine rollout which protected the nation. It's an interesting storyline amidst all the COVID stuff, and we've talked more about COVID than probably anyone. We don't have to get too far into it, but it's like somehow the news hype and hysteria almost forced the hands of world leaders to play along because my intuition was that Trump early on was kind of like, nah, we're going to stay open. What is this nonsense? Uh, And here you have Boris Johnson in writing, uh, actually looking at the numbers and going, wait, this doesn't make much sense. Now you're the elected official. You should be strong enough to be able to get up and say this and go like, where's this story now? Boris Johnson at the time of, if you didn't believe it, why was there so much pressure on you to keep pushing what look like, I mean, you can look at the economic costs alone of just shutting down countries of all the commitments to all the protocols and everything else. And if you're looking at the numbers and just going, it's uh, mainly old people who are forecasted to die anyways, this doesn't make much sense. Why are you as the world leader seeing things that you see as being common sense and somehow being pressured into not enacting policy around your own common sense? This was a story from Bridgeport last week of a lady being uh, busted for ballot harvesting. Uh, now, what what I took interest in the story, and now we're in the quick section, so we're not getting all the details. You know the way the quick section works? I'm just letting you know that these stories happened. Maybe you're not following. He had cleared voter fraud. They got busted for it. And I believe the judge even overturned the election. Now, what's interesting about the I don't even know what the protocol is now of them redoing the election. And obviously, it's a much smaller election. But I do remember that in the presidential election, when there was talk of the voter fraud, part of the conversation about the voter fraud was like, we don't really have a protocol to deal with this. Like, in other words, if there was voter fraud, which I'm not saying there was, but it seemed like part of the conversation was we need to have a democracy. We need to have elections. We kind of need everyone to just trust that these are honest elections because it's better for us to have a leader, even if it's the leader that cheated because it protects the system and it lets us go that this is a democracy because we don't really have a way of redoing elections. Um, I thought that this one was interesting because I believe a similar circumstance existed, but the judge was just like, this was so blatant. We're going to have to do something. And now I think they're trying to figure out, I guess, how they're going to redo it. 
all of that aside, all of the information I just gave you in the last two minutes aside, I'm just saying it's interesting breakthrough that you finally had red-handed voter fraud and that the election is, I believe, overturned or being redone. And I think that that's at least an acknowledgement of the fact that this exists. And I wonder if it creates court precedent for uh, future cases of this or maybe even a revisiting of if there was other ballot stuffing in other elections. All right, next quick story. Cases test claims that Trump is ineligible to run. So you guys remember January 6th, they were saying it's an insurrection. It's an insurrection. And apparently, because if you're involved in insurrection, you're not allowed to run for government. And so you've got multiple court cases going on to see if maybe Trump needs to be removed from the ballot on account of the fact that he was involved in an insurrection. Now, firstly, I don't understand removed from the ballot. Does that mean he can't run or you just have to write his name in? And like, do you, if you write, if, if enough people were to write a name in and spell it incorrectly, do then they pull that bullshit or you can't understand the handwriting because you can write people in. I guess even that's a question of how the ballot's structured, of how easy it is to write somebody in versus like, imagine you, you're like 100% Donald Trump, but you don't see him. You're like, all right, I guess I'll check off for the other guy. Uh, obviously, to me, this is just another example of government corruption doing everything they can to make sure that he can actually run in this election and be voted for. And so their newest scheme to try and make sure that the nation can't vote for Donald Trump is to say that he was involved in, in, in insurrection and is ineligible to run. Uh, another quick storyline. This was from The Week magazine. Below the Antarctic ice lies an unmodified landscape that has been preserved despite millions of years of ice cover. According to a new study published in the Journal Natural of Nature Communications, the East Antarctic Ice Sheet, EIS, covers 12,000 square miles and frozen under the surface is a landscape of hills and valleys carved by ancient rivers, AFP reported. It is an undiscovered landscape. No one's laid eyes on it, said Stuart Jameson, a geologist. That's what a bullshit job. A, a, a geologist of glaciers unbelievable at durham university and the lead author of the study was exciting is that it's been hiding there in plain sight so i guess we've got further proof of the fact that uh you know there must have been advanced civilizations before us that put our carbon into the atmosphere that led to changes on planet earth because of course there's no other way for that kind of thing to happen uh this was from politico fresh revelations contradict joe biden's sweeping denial of Hun hunter i've got on board of the whole hunter joe biden storyline uh, like at this point, you know, just to, to continuously tease these articles of Bobolinsky's of these small payments of China's of this, it's like, dude, let's either prove the corruption or let's not prove the corruption. What's somewhat interesting is that at least mainstream media seems to be acknowledging that when Joe Biden said he had no knowledge of his family affairs, he was lying. Now, is that enough for anyone to give a shit about? You know, it, it, until they start running constant coverage and think about the way that they used to do it with Trump. Like if they, they want to be dramatic about something, they can be dramatic about something. So I guess at least the wheels have turned a little bit that they're willing to acknowledge that he was aware of it. But, you know, they're not screaming and yelling. Has this guy been bribed by China? Is uh, who owns the Biden family? What kind of corruption actually exists here? They're not like really running with the I mean, think about how much uh, they got out of supposed Russia collusion and whether or not Donald Trump's a spy. I think about how much they could get out of if they really wanted to. Has Joe Biden been bribed by foreign adversaries? And think about, is he washing money through the Ukraine? Think about the endless storylines. And then you can just constantly leave the if questions of, we're just asking, is it possible? And so obviously they're not doing that. Um, but it is interesting that I guess enough evidence has been found that they're at least already willing to admit that uh, he's aware 
of um he's aware of the fact that uh there could that I'm sorry that Joe Biden was aware of the family stuff going on. Uh it, it and it's a bit of a turn. Uh US European officials broached topic of peace negotiations with Ukraine sources say uh which you know I'd already spoken about at the beginning of the show that we now have to be aware because uh Putin's going to take over all of Europe. So, you know, if if you're out in Amsterdam, you're out in the, the UK, or, you know, you guys better be careful because uh, the slow march into Poland's going to begin. Because remember, if we don't stop him here, he's going to go and take the whole thing. That's what he's been wanting to do his entire life. And now he's finally going for it and going one and oh, that's not bad. Um, I think my one of my takeaways on this is uh, never underestimate the value of public opinion. I think in part this war is de-escalating because we're coming into a election cycle. They can't sell it anymore. They can't figure out how to keep sending funds over there. Uh, the, you're not winning over the American people. And uh, obviously it's not going to happen, but we can all push for accountability as there's been at least 500,000 deaths on the Ukrainian side. And you're going to end up with a peace deal that could have been the peace deal probably from two or three years ago. Uh, egg on my face if uh, you know Putin ends up going through and taking Poland or, you know, this is still just the first storylines of, hey, we got to de-escalate and have a peace deal. So maybe that falls through. We're the first starting to tease it. But my God, if we end up with where, with what we could have and should have had two years ago, if we didn't just send over funds over there and have Boris Johnson squash that peace deal, uh, uh, talk about an administration that should, you know, be tried. Uh, unbelievable. The intelligence that they were working on. If Putin doesn't end up invading the rest of Europe, and then it also turns out that you guys made a really bad bet, and that all the resources being sent over there didn't lead to a win against Putin, and you just basically sacrificed 500,000-plus people in Ukraine for absolutely no reason whatsoever other than possibly your own profits, there should be some accountability. My God, it looks like I froze again. Is that just my camera? I think it's just my camera that froze, so we'll, uh, we'll keep going. Lost audio. Muted again. No, no, but that was like a full seven minutes ago. Am I, am I still here? Are we still going? Whatever. At this point, we got we only got a couple topics left. Uh, infant mortality rates rise for the first time in 20 years, according to the CDC. And uh, if you guys are looking for what changed over the last couple of years, what might be different, might what might be the thing to solve it, I'm going to go with the stress of Putin's war. Because, I mean, nothing else has changed. If we're looking at the climate, if we're looking at things that might have changed over the last couple of years that could have led to an increase in mortality death, I'm going to go with that uh, it's, it's, it's got to be that. It's got to be the stress of Putin's war. What else could it be? That's why, if anything, I say double down on our war efforts in Ukraine. Send more troops over there. We got to hold this guy back while we can, because otherwise we're going to end up with even more Putin stress. We're going to be constantly wondering how soon till he's at American doorsteps as he marches into Poland and he takes over all of Europe. How soon till he's in our very backyards? And think about how stressful that will be. Think about how many babies are going to die. Does our American politicians no longer have concern for the lives of our babies? Have they become pro-baby death? Are they sitting there in their, in their beautiful offices on their finely purchased high-end lounge and office where going, we want American babies dead, and so we're going to increase <laughs> Putin's march into Poland so that Putin's stress kills us all? 
All right, I think that's enough nonsense for one of the episode. Thank you so much for joining us. Also, thank you very much for the uh, for the new sponsors. Uh, and we try and space those out a little bit more. That sheet that I wasn't planning on plugging sheet, but then I was talking about that horrible story of trying to go to Walmart and purchase underwear and why no one should ever do that to themselves. So, you know, some of the new sponsors was a little close to those ones, but we try and space them out to keep them entertaining. And every brand that we brought to you guys are fucking on point. I love sheath underwear. If you haven't tried it yet, you're crazy. Promo code RYM, get yourself 20% off. Nadu Shave Club, dude, get away from your fucking picks and shit. If you're one of those real men using razors, what are you doing? Support the show, support the sponsor, and then lastly, load up on your bag of bullets. All right, that's our show. Thanks for hanging out with us. Back soon with another episode. Later.